Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Welcome. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Southwest Louisiana. So super excited to be with you all again this week. How are you? I hope you're well. I hope your week is going well. You and your families are all well, and Hashem is uh, is leading you into great, great places, great relationships, um, and uh, and everything is good. Uh, I know that in, uh, in, in our nation right now, and in a lot of places, things are tough, but you know what? We have a, an incredible promise, and that promise is that, not that we won't have hard times, but that we have Emmanuel, we have Hashem with us, and uh, so I hope you're taking some hope in that, and I hope that things are going well uh, for you. I am super excited to be back with you guys this week, guys and gals, and I just want to thank everybody for being an awesome community. Uh, for those of you listening for the first time, as we always do, if you stumbled upon us on Hebrew Nation, or you're catching the afterwards uh, on the archives, uh, or on our podcast, I just want to say welcome to the family, and hope you enjoy the discussion uh, today, the, the teaching today. And uh, I want to invite you, if you didn't know, we, uh, I'm the pastor of Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, and uh, we are fortunate enough to be able to live stream our services each Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central and would love for you to stop in and join us. Uh, we live stream to our website, which is outofashesministries.org. We also simulcast to Facebook and to YouTube uh, and to our mobile app. And so come by, say Shabbat Shalom, uh, hang out with us. A uh, little addendum to our normal schedule this coming Shabbat, uh, which is July the 3rd. We will not be live streaming after I just announced our live streaming uh, because we have a big family day planned and we're going to do services a little different uh, differently this Shabbat. But after this, normal service will resume and live stream will resume. And uh, so we'd love for you to come hang out with us, um, whether you have a congregation already that meets at a different time or maybe you're you know out and about where you don't have a congregation. Uh, would be great for you to, to join us and uh, to kind of pop your head in and say Shabbat Shalom. Uh, for all of you guys who and gals who are uh, longtime listeners, just want to say thank you, of course, for, for being faithful and for just creating an awesome uh, community uh, around this radio program. And uh, we love you guys very, very much. Thank you for your support and for your communication and your feedback and all of those things. And uh, it's awesome, awesome to have. Uh, before we get into today's podcast, uh, today's show, just want to remind everybody that uh, I know there's a lot of uh, you know debate about calendars and all those kinds of things, but uh, on the Hillel calendar, on the the Jewish calendar, uh, we are entering a time called the Dire Straits. Uh, three weeks from the 17th of Tammuz to the 9th of Av to Tisha B'Av. And um, these are called the, the dire straits. And there's a lot of reasons why historically I'd encourage you to look up 
um, this time frame in, in Jewish history and in biblical history. A lot of things happen uh, during this time leading up to um, the ninth of Av, which is an infamous day in Jewish history, uh, where both temples were destroyed. Uh, the seventeenth of Tammuz begins this. Uh, this is when the the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans, uh, and then later Jerusalem fell on the ninth of Av, and the temple was destroyed. Um, and I bring it up just because, uh, you know, the 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 Moedim, the appointed times of Hashem, are really uh, they're just so much more than holidays. Uh, there's so much more than, you know, than holidays that we traded for Christmas and Easter, uh, those of us coming from a, a Christian background. There's, there's so much more than, uh, than that, and, and there are more than times to just get together and more than, more than all those things. They, they really are. I believe the Sabbath is, is really the pinnacle of this, but the, the seven feast days, uh, feast times of the year are really, I see them kind of as a shim's heartbeat in time. And um, and they're a way for us to sync up with, to what what to his heart and to his mind and what he's doing in the earth and wants to do with us and through us. And so these times are very important. And uh, even though we don't realize them or, or don't take notice maybe uh, of this aspect of it, doesn't change the fact that um, that that Hashem's heart, I believe, is is linked to these times, to these feast days, and to these festivals, and and to the Shabbat, the new moons, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, I just want you know, to, just want to bring up um, that we are entering this time, and it's generally um, known of as a, as a time of of kind of intense spiritual testing and introspection. And so, if you during this next you know few weeks, um, if during this time you feel you know some some extra spiritual sensitivity, uh, maybe you're feeling extra you know extra pressed in some areas or or tested in some areas. I just want you to know that this is this is part of part of the feast cycle in a sense uh, that is leading us to uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Teruah. Uh, we have the these three weeks of the dire straits, and then we begin the forty days of repentance, uh, the the month of Elul, which takes us through Yom Teruah into Yom Kippur, and uh, and so this whole time is beginning to gear up, and it's beginning to Hashem's beginning to to deal with us. I believe even now. And, and start to set our hearts right as we approach, uh, as we approach the fall feast, of course, leading up to and fi- finishing with Sukkot and Shemini Atzeret. So um, I just want you to be aware that if you feel something different, feel like the atmosphere changes a little bit, there's a very good reason for that. And I believe it's linked to uh, these times and seasons, particularly this three weeks called the dire straits. So uh, be in prayer for one another and be supportive of one another. Be patient uh, with each other, those in your, in your fellowship, in your family, um, and with your leaders, etc., and because uh, this is a time that we're supposed to be looking inward and preparing for the fall feast, and so uh, be encouraged, be encouraged, uh, but be cautious and, and be prayerful and mindful. So, before we jump into today's episode, let us go to the Father and just ask His blessing on our uh, our time together. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King. We bless you for this opportunity to be able to be together, to reach across uh, state lines, country, national lines, and to come together as your family. We pray, Father, that through what we study today, we can bear your image a little better in the world around us.
right. Well, welcome back. Uh, again, so good to have everybody with us today. Um, today, I want to be in the part in Parshat Pinchas, um, but we're not going to talk about Pinchas so much. We're actually going to end up talking about Sukkot and uh, and a, a theme in Sukkot that I, I just want to throw out there and kind of pique your interest about. Many of you probably have studied this already, but um, I just want to throw out some things about Sukkot as we're getting ready for um, you know these fall feast days and preparing ourselves for them. So uh, Pinchas, Parshat Pinchas, uh, begins in Bamidbar 25 in Numbers chapter 25, verse 10. And yet you really kind of get in halfway through the story if you start reading there. Um, the kind of the, the cliffhanger is in the last week's parsha of Balak, um, where we find that uh, Balaam, of course, you know, was tasked by King Balak uh, to curse the nation of Israel. And you have Balaam's donkey. We discussed all of that last week. And um, Balaam's frustration at the end he decides, well, if I can't curse them outright, then uh, I'm going to counsel uh, King Balak uh, to, you know, to seduce the men. And, uh, and that's, what's, that's what happens at the end of uh, last week's Parsha, at the beginning of chapter 25. And we find that there is a young man named Pinchas, or Phineas. Uh, Pinchas, who is a grandson of Aaron, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, uh, and just... A little note, it's Eleazar, not Eliezer. Eliezer is uh, Abram's servant, Abraham's servant. This is Eleazar. It is a little different, just some people get mixed up. Um, and so this is Eleazar's son, and uh, we find out that he uh, he he uh, puts a, a spear. He spears through an Israelite man and a Midianite woman who are having relations uh, in a tent and and halts the plague that Hashem had sent upon the people for um, their idolatrous worship uh, at Baal Peor. And so it, it just to kind of set us, and so we kind of know where we are, um, Midian and Moab, uh, they're in the land of Midian, and the Moabites are there. And this is an interesting thing about Midian because... Um, Midian is a place, a region where Moshe spent, you know, 40 years of his life, right? Uh, marries into that place. And, and he marries into Jethro's family. And we're told that Jethro is the priest of Midian. And so Jethro is a, a very distinguished figure in the land of Midian. Um, everybody knows him. He's a, he's a ruler and in, in a judge probably in the land of Midian. And so there's a very good chance that, you know, we think about Moses on the backside of the desert for that 40 years, and he's kind of alone and, and isolated maybe, and yet that probably is not really the case. Um, he marries into a very well-known family, a very wealthy family, likely, and there's a good chance that he's rubbing shoulders with a lot of the, the leaders and the, you know, the movers and shakers in the, in the area of Midian. Just something we don't think about a whole lot, but I don't think that Moses was isolated maybe as we kind of sometimes uh, think about him as being, you know, quote unquote, on the backside of the desert. And so they find himself back in this place as they are staging to enter the land. And, and it's the same place that Moses had spent so much time in. I just think that gets lost sometime in our, our timeline and how we read things. And so he's in a very familiar place. And I just have to ask myself these questions when I come through this. Like, does does Moshe have any history with Balak, or does he have any any history with Balaam? 
Um, you know, is there any, you know, has there ever been a crossing between these folks? Do they know each other or know of each other at least, surely? And uh, it's just interesting because, again, um, I, I try to remind myself and, and remind, you know, anyone who, who, who listens to me that we, we tend to, uh, I'm going to say water down. I don't want to, I don't mean it in negative content. We, we, we generalize scripture um, because the the scripture is because God is the God of all creation and and the word is for everyone right um, and yet that can kind of generalize or over generalize especially the Torah because in the in the Torah um, there was one nation there's one people group that the the Torah was given to in order for them to protect and yes they were a mixed multitude I understand that but the the nation of Israel specifically. Um, was given the Torah was given to them to preserve to to live out and to keep and to guard and so um, this this story that the Torah especially and even into into Tanakh the prophets and the writings um, until you really get to Acts and and some of the New Testament uh, epistles the the Torah and the Tanakh really are are about one one family the family of Abraham right and and there it really takes place in one Sort of small region of the of the world. Uh, I mean, you took a look at e, from all the way to Egypt to north of Israel and Syria and those areas. It, it's not a small space where you compare it to Texas, right? In America, it's a small space. It, it, you know, it's it's not a very big area. And so the story, the story of the Bible, while it is about humanity and is it about all, it is about all humankind, really the foundation of it and the root of it is it's about one family story. In one little one little piece of the earth, and I think it's important to remember that because when Abraham uh, runs into the people he runs into, they all know each other, right? Abraham is a king in in, in his in in his story. Uh, he becomes a great king, very wealthy, and so these people know each other. And and when we get into um, specifically talking about the Moabites and Moshe and the nation of Israel. The Moabites are distant cousins to Israel, right? The Moabites come uh, come about by way of Lot and his daughters uh, after Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And after his wife is turned to the pillar of salt, etc. His daughters think that they're the only ones left in creation, and it's up to them to repopulate the earth uh, and then save humanity. And that's where the Moabites come from. And so a lot of these ites that we read about, you know, the Moabites, Jebusites, Amorites, but, um, several of these nations are, are actually cousins. They're all in the same, they're all in the same family, whether they come from Noah or later. They're all very, very, uh, very, very closely related. Uh, and, and they know each other and they know about each other. This is not some, this is not like they've never heard of each other before and oh my goodness, all of a sudden this is a new people we're, we're, uh, we're, you know, coming upon. Uh, in, in the way that maybe we sometimes might read it. And so the same thing I would believe has to be with Midian. Moshe spent a lot of time there and was was upper crust there, married into the upper crust part of, of Midian. And so I'd have to believe that you know there's some something to that as well. And this is where we are introduced. We read in the prophets uh, about the worship of Baal, right? About uh, Shlomo, uh, Hamelech, King Solomon. Uh, Isaiah speaks a lot about Baal. Um, and we, we read a lot about, about Baal. Well, where is Baal and where does that worship begin? It begins right here. This is the inception, as far as the Torah tells us, of Israel's enticement to worship Baal. Uh, Baal Peor is where the Midianites are, and, and this is where it begins. 
and so when we talk about this plague and Pinchas's his you know his act of of, of salvation really and redemption. Um, this is what Hashem says in the Torah. When we think about that and we think, man, this is a really, really, you know, it may seem kind of out of balance. The, the justice may seem out of balance for what happened. But then as we read through the prophets and we go through generation after generation and we keep turning pages and book after book and we keep seeing this Baal thing come up, we have to realize this is where it began. And Hashem in His wisdom and His foresight saw this happening and saw the possibility of it happening. And so this is, this is the beginning of a whole new era in the life of Israel and a whole new, uh, a whole new temptation and enticement that, that, that uh, Israel would deal with from now on. And so it's, it's important to remember that as we kind of situate ourselves where we are in the, in the story. And um, so we, we start out with Pincus and in chapter 25, verse 10, at the beginning of this Parsha. And uh, we, we see Hashem's, you know, really acknowledgement of Pinchas and, and what he did. And then there's some census taking. And um, I would encourage you to read through the census. We're not going to take time for that. But really, you know, a lot of things that a lot of our learning about uh, the, the heritage and the history of Israel and, and really our history as well, uh, a lot of that is lost because we skip things like um, uh, like uh, censuses, and we skip things like uh, genealogies is the word I was looking for. We, we skip those things because they're kind of boring reading. And so what I would encourage you to do, um, I have a chumash, um, or, you know, have a, a, a Jewish translation um, with notes, with commentary, and, and really dive into these sections and see, because so many of these things... So many names will pop up, families will pop up later that we think we've never heard of before, and yet we're told about them um, in, you know, in the genealogies or in the census, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very, very important as a foundation. Uh, one of the things that, we'll, that we talk about often on, on Image Bearers Radio is, is about the culture of Scripture. And I think that is the, probably the most missed piece of, of, of uh, apologetics, of Bible study just generally, is the culture. We want to read the black and white words on the page, and yet um, I've talked about it before. I'm, I'm a Cajun, and there's a lot of things that come with, with that. Um, you know, we have some listeners that are Irish or that, you know, are, are you know, European or whatever, different, different um, cultures you come from, and you know very well that, yes, you may have your own language, but a culture is so much more than just a language. It's a tradition. It's a feeling. It's a smell. It's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a vision. It's, it's something much more than just words that you speak. Those words are just a vehicle to communicate ideas and values and, and things like that. And so whenever we, you know, when we, when Hashem turns our hearts towards the Torah of Israel, we, we, we discount our growth. And, and what I think what He's trying to do with us, we discount that by just learning about the feasts or just learning about dietary or just learning about whatever um, from, a, from a, an academic standpoint. And where we really start to, to grasp the roots and, and get into the, the culture of Israel is really through things like genealogies and censuses. I know I hate, I, I, I struggle to read them myself and I hate to say it, but those are the areas where you start to learn family members. You start to learn ancestors. You start to learn great, 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 great grandfathers and grandmothers and uncles and, and all these things. And you start to understand how the family is, is tied together. And that has implications for all generations. So 
uh, I would encourage you to read through the through the censuses because they are they are very important and there's little nuggets tucked into all the census and all the genealogy stuff. There's little nuggets tucked in everywhere. And then we get into uh, the Levitical census, and then we have the calling of Joshua and the the kind of the tra- beginning of the transference from Moshe to to Joshua to Yehoshua. And then we in uh, chapter 28 we start to talk about offerings. Now this is kind of might seem out of place, um, but these these offerings are really first given in Shemot in Exodus and continued in Vayikra in Leviticus as the tabernacle is first inaugurated. And this this of course follows the sin of the golden calf, right? That idolatrous uh, sin. And then you have the inauguration of the tabernacle. And these offerings are explained really in detail there. And then we get kind of a recapitulation or a retelling of them here. What's interesting about that is that though it may seem out of place, it really isn't. It's really perfectly placed here because what just happened? We have idolatrous worship, right? And Hashem is angered. His, his anger is mustered against the people. And so what do you have after that? You have a consecration. And a consecration happens through the tabernacle, with, through offerings, through drawing near. And remember, this is not about giving sacrifices to appease God's anger. Uh, this is about giving offerings, korbanot, korban, which is drawing people back, drawing you back near through teshuva and through the giving of offerings, drawing you back through to Hashem. So we have the, in, in chapter 28, we have the tamid offerings, which are the continual daily offerings. And then we have the Musaf offerings. Uh, Musaf just means additional. And so you have the Shabbat Musaf offerings, where, which are additional besides the daily regular Tamid offerings. Uh, you have Rosh Chodesh offerings. And then we get into the festivals. Uh, so we've studied the festivals in Leviticus chapter 23, of course, but this is more of an exp- expounding on the, the festivals and, again, kind of a retelling of the festivals. So we have Pesach, uh, and, and Pesach here includes um, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. It includes Hag HaMatzah, and then we have Shavuot, and then we have in chapter 29, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then we get to Sukkot. And so we have all of this is dealing specifically more with the offering side of the, the feast days instead of just kind of how to celebrate them. It, it looks and feels a little different differently than it did in Vayikra 23. Um, not, a, not so much as, as there is a time base, you know, here, of course, in the seventh month and the first day of the month, etc. Um, but yet there's, there's more, this is more focused on the offerings, particularly the Musaf offerings. So this is just Hashem reminding everyone like, hey, in addition to your daily offerings, these extra offerings, these Musaf offerings are going to be given. And so um, I, I want to sp- uh, focus on Sukkot. Um, we are again preparing uh, for for the fall feast, and you know it's it's hard sometimes for for some folks. Uh, I know you know in our congregation we have people at all different stages that are some that are they you know they're just learning really what Shabbat is, and then you know we have some that have have, have kept Shabbat for you know a year or two, and they're starting to, to kind of get the hang of it and, and get it. Because when you start keeping Shabbat, most of you will know that, that have, have practiced Torah for long enough, you know that it takes some time to kind of re, recalibrate your life, right? Um, when, when, when the first day of the week is Sunday and not Monday anymore, 
it kind of takes some time to recalibrate, right? For your whole week to, to, to revolve around Shabbat and around Saturday rather than around Sunday or Monday, the first day of, of work week, right? And so it takes some time for calibration. And so we've got people like that. We've got people that have been celebrating 10, 12, 15 years, you know, and, and, and kind of are veterans of the, uh, of the you know, of, of keeping Shabbat, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the feast days are another one of those things that you have to kind of recalibrate. And, um, I mean, I don't know if you were like me, but it seemed like, you know, in my former, uh, you know, my former Christian world, um, I, I knew the date of Christmas. And it was 20, December 25th every single year, and that never changed. The day of the week may have changed, but the date never changed. And yet, how many of us fell into the thing of, like, you know, gift shopping the, the, the day before Christmas or the week before Christmas? And, you know, especially us guys, we're terrible at stuff like this. And so, you know, it just runs up on us, Right. And one of the beautiful things about the, the Feast of Hashem, number one, there's seven, and they're interspersed, you know, really nicely, equally throughout the year. And then you have Hanukkah and Purim, but then you also have things like Elul and like the, the dire straits. You have the, the Tisha B'Av and, you know, Tammuz to Av and, and all these things so that we, we never really are given a chance or we shouldn't have a chance for things to sneak up on us. We should always be engaging and we should always be mindful of where we are on the calendar because things are coming, coming. Coming, 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 and we should always be ready. All right, we will be right back right after the break. everybody welcome back to the second segment in this episode of image bears radio and so we are as as we are kind of staying aware of what's going on and this, let me just let me just throw this out for free uh, that i know that there are some out there that may listen um that you know stick to a strictly you know the the feast days that are mentioned in scripture uh the seven feasts that are mentioned in scripture and really don't do, don't, you know, don't celebrate any of the fast days uh, of tradition uh, or, you know, maybe some don't even celebrate Hanukkah or Purim or, or whatever. Um, and, and that's okay. And I just, I want to make mention of that. And I want to just offer up this, this idea that, you know, when we celebrate things like Hanukkah and Purim and uh, when, we, when we recognize the, the fast days uh, of Jewish tradition, uh, and when we recognize things like these three weeks, the dire straits, and when we recognize Elul, the month of, of Teshuvah, um, leading up to Yom Kippur, and when we recognize these things, it is, it is more of a constant year-round engagement with Hashem. It's more of a constant year-round. Uh, it just is something that, that should turn our minds and turn our spirits always towards Hashem and always being ready to meet with Him. And so the, these, these feast days, these seven Moedim, are the, the times when we meet, but these other times can be preparatory times. They need to be times of introspection, making sure that we're ready to address the king. Um, because, again, we, you know, we just can't just come in just all haphazardly. Uh, he is the king of the universe, and there's a protocol, and we need to be aware of that. So I want to talk about Sukkot, and this is really a more of a Sukkot lesson, but some things that um, I, I was thinking about this, this week as I was reading the Parsha that I wanted to, to approach. Also, uh, I just want to let you guys know the Bible Project 
Uh, if you listen to their podcasts or watch their videos, or if you just watch their videos, they have an amazing podcast um, where they really do a deep dive behind all the videos that they do. And uh, I love the, the Bible Project. I don't agree with everything uh, for sure, uh, but I don't even agree with myself most of the time. So, uh, but they have uh, re- recently they are wrapping up a series on ancient uh, cosmology, and we've spent a lot of time in Genesis. And so, if that interests you at all, I would really encourage you to go and listen to the last four, five, six episodes. I think they do an uh, interview with Dr. Walton, Dr. John Walton, who I taught from a lot when I taught my Genesis series. Uh, and then there's another scholar that's coming up that they're uh, they're interviewing. But it's a fast. Fascinating, fascinating discussion uh, on ancient cosmologists, how the ancients viewed the world differently than we do, and how that reflects in how, you know, how Hashem used them to write scripture. And uh, it's, a, it's a, phase, a fascinating conversation, so I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, it's available on their website, Bible Project, or on Apple Podcasts, or where, wherever. So um, they're doing a, they did a discussion on, um, it kind of provoked me to think about this, on, on water. And oddly enough, you know, they're, they're walking through and discussing the first couple of chapters of Genesis, which we have done, uh, you know, a, a whole, whole bunch. Um, but this idea of water, and I want to talk about this in light of Sukkot because it's mentioned in our Parsha. And, and during Sukkot, as most of you will know, there is something that goes on called the, uh, the water drawing ceremony, right? The water drawing ceremony. And the Talmud talks about if you, you know, if you've, if you've never experienced the water drawing ceremony, the joy and the the pomp and the party and the the celebration exuberance, you, you've never seen anything at all. And um and, and this is all has to do with water. And so, in an ancient context, this was about agriculture, right? This was about the the rains, and you you were praying to Hashem for rains for your crops for the next year. And but as it goes along, the prophets really picked up on this the celebration of water and the, the understanding of water and and really put it in a spiritual context and really in a uh, in a prophetic context and so we have in the, the first chapter of Genesis right in the first uh, in the first verse in Bereshit uh, in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth when the earth was uh, astonishingly empty or uh, wild and waste I think is one way that they they used to describe it uh, with darkness upon the surface of the deep. And that that word that idea for the deep there that word is tahom, and that tahom is uh, like chaos waters. It's uh, it's there's two sides to water, right? And we all know this. Um, for those of us here in the South, in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, in this area, we've experienced uh, torrential rains like we haven't seen in years um, here this spring and on into this summer. It, it's still it's raining more than it, it has in the, in the last you know decade or so. Um, and and rain and water has two sides to it, right? Um, too much water is absolutely devastating. Uh, we have south of us in Lake Charles, we have many, many people that were just getting back into their homes from the hurricanes that happened at the end of 20, uh, 2020. And now their homes are flooded again by all this all this rain that we've had. And so too much water, this to home, this this chaotic water is the way that um, that the biblical writers use to talk about water, like the abyss, um, the the deep abyss that has the potential for destruction. Um, later, it would be talked about as to where uh, where the dead go. Right, this is kind of. Um, to, to the abyss, to Sheol, is, is kind of this idea of deep, chaotic waters. 
which is really interesting in the gospel accounts uh, when Yeshua interacts with, with the, the Sea of Galilee and stuff. That's thought of as Tahom, uh, this deep chaos water. And so the darkness was upon the, the Tahom, the deep chaos water, um, and the divine presence of the Ruach hovered upon the surface of the waters. That second word, waters, is different than the deep. Um, that is Hamayim, the waters, right? Um, the name of heaven is Shemayim, Shem, Mayim, the name of waters. Um, and so this, this idea of water has two different characteristics. Uh, it can be destructive, has a potential to be destructive, but when it's controlled by Hashem, when it's, when it's used for His purposes, it brings life. Right, just the right amount of water brings life, and I know because we're cutting our grass here every like three days um, between the heat and the water, and the perfect amount of rain and water, as it is constricted and controlled by Hashem, uh, brings life. And so that's kind of the beginning of, of Genesis one, and then when we get into Genesis two, we start to learn about the garden um, that is in Eden, right to the east, um, in verse eight nine ish. Um, and verse 10, it says that there is a river, river that issues forth from Eden to water the garden. So there's one river that comes from Eden, and it waters the garden. And then after it leaves the garden, it, it is divided, and it becomes four headwaters, right? Um, and so the, the names of these are really important. And again, Dr. Mackey on the Bible Project points this out. And you, I really encourage you to go listen to them for more. I'm, I'm stealing some of his stuff. I'll just be honest with you. Um, but in light of Sukkot, it's really important. Uh, the name of the first is Pishan. And then uh, the one that encircles the whole land of Havilah, where, gold, where the gold is. So Pishan is going down towards, if you leave Israel, going south uh, through the um, Sinai Peninsula and, and the area of Sinai, it is, uh, Havilah is on the way to Egypt, and it's where the gold is, okay? It's on the way to Egypt, which is really important, right? Because Egypt features really heavily in Scripture, right? Um, the gold, the land that is good, the Bedolach is there. Bedolach is... Um, like a, a, a fragrant, sticky substance. Um, the manna in, in the desert is this kind of idea of this sticky kind of resin substance, very fragrant. Um, and the Shoham stone. Uh, verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon, the one that encircles the whole land of Cush. Well, the land of Cush is really ancient for the land of Israel, and we know that the Gihon, the Gihon is important. Why? Because it is the river that that or it is the the water that gives water supply to the temple that is Jerusalem right so the Gihon is synonymous with Jerusalem uh, the name of the third is uh, Hidekel the one that flows towards the east of Assyria and the fourth is the Euphrates so the third is the Tigris that's Assyria and the fourth is the Euphrates and what does the Euphrates water the Euphrates waters Babylon northern Mesopotamia so Babylon is in northern Mesopotamia, and that is the Euphrates. Uh, anytime you see the river or the great river in Scripture, river with a capital R, that's the Euphrates. Um, and then Assyria is southern Mesopotamia, and that is uh, watered by the Tigris. And then, so you have these four, you have four waters, and the, the uh, Gihon, which is Jerusalem, and then uh, the Pishon, which is Egypt. Okay, so think about this and how cool this is. So you have, you have the, the three major empires that are featured in the Tanakh. You have Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt, the three major world powers that will affect Israel's 
you know, how God deals with Israel and how Israel responds to Hashem um, is mentioned right here in this, in this, you know, second chapter of Bereshit, which I think is really super cool. So let's get this imagery. You have uh, the mountain. You have the mountain of Eden where there's a garden. We've talked about this before. Eden is not a valley. It's, a, it's supposed to be viewed as a, a, a cosmic mountain or the temple mountain, uh, the place where Hashem dwells. And it is, a, it is a high mountain, and there is one river that comes down from it out of the mountain, and that it waters the garden. And then after it waters the garden, it splits to these four, and it goes to where? It goes to the nations, right? That's the way we're supposed to think about it. It waters the entire world. Waters the nations, okay? So this idea of water is super, super important. I mean, if we did a study on water in Scripture, it would take us months during these episodes to talk about all the different ways that water is so important uh, to, to the Tanakh, to the biblical writers, etc., etc. Um, we, we've talked about uh, Jeremiah, Yermiahu, where Israel is in captivity in Babylon, right? And he talks about, and I think it's in chapter 29. Uh, yeah, because it's right around, you know, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you, 29.11. Uh, we, we read that verse, and that's really all we, we read in Jeremiah 29. And yet he goes on to say, you know, hey, go and, and plant yourselves in Babylon and, and plant gardens and build houses and give your, your, son, your daughters in marriage and, and allow your sons to take wives in marriage. And this is a, he's evoking Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and plant gardens, right? And this idea that, uh, that you'll, you'll water the earth, you'll, you will be the blessing to Babylon. He even says, seek the shalom of the city, right? You'll be a blessing, you'll be life. You will bring, and, and even though water is not necessarily specifically mentioned there, the idea is that with Eden, with gardens, there has to be water. That's, just, that's the integral part, water and dirt. That's the integral part of a garden, right? That's the foundation. And the idea is that when you go and plant gardens, that you, you, you're bringing life, you're bringing water, you're bringing life to the, the nations. So three other kind of passages I want to pick up on as we kind of try, and this is really like super, this is like 30,000 foot flyover. And I would encourage you to, to study this some more because it's absolutely beautiful. But for our purposes here, let's go ahead and move forward a little bit. We're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Now in Ezekiel for the past, uh, I don't know if it's 11 or 14 chapters, whatever it is, Ezekiel is being taken on a tour of Beit HaMikdash, of the temple, the holy temple. In chapter 47, it says that he brought me back to the door of the house, Habayit, which is another name for the temple. Uh, and behold, water was flowing out from under the threshold of the house eastward, for the front of the house faced east. We know that. The water was flowing down from under the right side of the house, south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around outside by the way of the water, uh, by the outer gate, rather. And the way of the gate looking east, behold, water was trickling out from the right side. When the man went out eastward with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me into the water, water to the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and it led me into water, water to the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me into water, water up to the waist. Again he measured me to a thousand, and now it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen, water to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. I mean, holy smokes. So what the idea, again, is this is Eden all over again. This is a river coming forth. This is the Gihon. This is the river coming forth from uh, Jerusalem 
And this is not about quote-unquote water necessarily. This is prophetic imagery. This is poetic imagery um, that is talking about the rule of Hashem, the kingdom and the dominion of Hashem that will come forth, that will issue forth from the, from the tabernacle, and from the temple, excuse me, and that will water the nations, it will water the entire land. And it starts out as the temple, maybe as a trickle, as it's described here. And by the time you get two, three, four thousand cubits out, it becomes this vast river that can't be crossed. And so this idea of water tied to Behamigdash, which again, it's not about a building. It, yes, it is. Yes, it is about a building. But it is about the center of Hashem's government and His kingdom, Shekinah, His presence, His dwelling presence here on the earth. It's about the the center of the kingdom where people are serving Him and worshiping Him in loyalty and protecting uh, His character and His reputation and His Torah. It's about that. It's about that. That is loyalty, believing loyalty to Hashem and people that are committed to Him and His righteousness and justice. That's what it's about. It, it takes place in the temple. But it's about even more than just the temple itself. So next I want to go over to Zechariah. Now we're going to be in Zechariah 14. But as you kind of turn there or look for that, I want to just mention in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says, In that day a spring will be opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. I will erase the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. That's in, in chapter 13. And we go to chapter 14. And this is amazing as we were talking about um, coming to the Mount of Olives and, and Zechariah's prophecy. He says in verse 1, Behold, a day of Adonai is coming when your plunder will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to wage war. A city will be captured and the houses ransacked and the women ravished. Half of the city will be exiled, but the remainder of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north and half towards the south. Then you will flee through my mountain valley because the mountain valley will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee like you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then Adonai my God will come and all the Kedoshim, the holy ones, will be with him. In that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. It will be a day known only to Adonai, neither day nor night, even in the evening time there will be no light. Here we go, verse 8. Moreover, in that day living waters will flow from Jerusalem, half towards the eastern sea and half towards the western sea, both in the summer and in the winter. Now what is to the, uh, the eastern sea? What is the eastern sea? That's the Dead Sea. What is to the Western Sea? That's the Mediterranean Sea. And again, if you listen to the Bible Project podcast, Dr. Mackey goes into a lot more detail about the Dead Sea. It's really interesting. Um, but this idea of a, a river flowing from Jerusalem, living waters flowing from Jerusalem. Verse 9 says, Adonai will then be king over all the earth. In that day, Adonai will be Echad and his name Echad. The whole land from Givah to Ramon south of Jerusalem will be like the Aravah. Jerusalem will be raised up and occupy our place from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, the corner gate, and the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. People will dwell in her, and no longer will there be a ban of destruction, and Jerusalem will live in security. Right? So this is this is the messianic promise. This is the this is what this is what everyone is looking for. This is what the Jewish people are looking for. Um, we're gonna go to one more scripture and then I want to jump into the Brihadishah, the New Testament, and the Gospels and Revelation before we wrap up.
So the last of the prophets I want to look at is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And uh, I'll just read from the NIV. In the last days, the mountain of Hashem's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Wow. Okay, so what's, what's, going, what's going on with Isaiah? I thought the, mountain, the river comes from Jerusalem to the nations, and yet Isaiah is talking about the nations streaming to Jerusalem. There is this interplay between Hashem's life going out and being spread into the nations and the nations then turning in repentance and pledging allegiance to Hashem and streaming back towards the source, back towards the source of life, which is Hashem and His people. Let's go over and make a stop in the Gospels, and then we're going to end up in the book of Revelation before we wrap up the episode today. Okay, so we are going to be in the Gospel of John, Yohanan, uh, chapter 19. This is describing the crucifixion. Now, before we talk about this, we have to remember that, that John takes uh, imagery to a whole new level, right? John is not like any of the other Gospels. Um, he takes this imagery, which is why it's so enticing to read John, Although, in my opinion, the Gospel of John is the most complicated out of all four um, because John uses so much imagery and calls back to so many things that really, um, in, in traditional Christianity, we haven't studied a whole lot. And so we can, we can make them mean things that maybe John didn't intend for them to mean. And so we, it's, why, it's why it's important to have such a good Torah and Tanakh foundation. But let's read in John chapter 19, uh, verse 33. So the soldiers come and they see that the other two have died. Uh, the, the other two are not dead. They break their legs. Verse 33 says, Now when they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He who has testified, uh, who has seen it, has testified, and his testimony is true. He didn't know that it's telling the truth, so you may also believe. Um, and so what are we supposed to think? What do the gospel writers think? What is John thinking as he's talking about Yeshua's side being pierced and blood and water flowing out? For me, I think John is evoking this temple imagery that that this king that has been killed is the establishment of of the kingdom that we that that the Jewish people have been waiting for. He is the beginning. He is the new Adam, the new beginning. This is a new Eden taking place and a new creation taking place all over again. Yes, the, the, the physical temple will be destroyed in, in 40 or so years, and yet this is a whole new era that is beginning in the life of Israel and in the people of God. And so this idea of water coming forth from him harkens back, I believe in John's mind, to Zechariah and Ezekiel, where, they ta- where they're talking about this time where, the, where Hashem will, will issue forth these waters from the, the temple. And Yeshua is an embodiment of that idea. He is not the temple. He's not replacing the temple. He's an embodiment of the idea of the temple, as we all should be, as we all should be. All right, last stop before we wrap up. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. Okay, so Revelation chapter 21. We're only going to spend a few moments here. And Revelation chapter 21 is describing the, the end, which is really the beginning, which is really the new Eden and, and, and recreation all over again. Um, John, the revelator, talks about the 12 gates and uh, in the end of chapter 21, verse 22, no temple, for Adonai is the temple, right? Remember, because we can get so wrapped up in a building that we forget what the building's about. I love the temple. You all know I study the temple. I, I love the offerings. I love the services. I, I love all, everything about the temple, and I pray for a third temple to be built. That's just my stance. You may disagree. You may not like me for it. 
That's just, that's just what I believe. However, the temple is not the main thing. The presence of Hashem dwelling on the earth like it did in the garden with Adam is the main thing. And so I saw no temple for the temple is Adonai, Elohai, Tzavaot, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the, the sun or the moon. And the glory of Hashem lights it up, right? And the nations, the nations, shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Um, and then we go to, verse, uh, to chapter 22, and he says, And then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city street and on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb shall be in the city, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Night shall be no more, and people will have no need of lamplight or sunlight, for Adonai Elohim will shine on them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Wow. So what I, what I want to do, I know, listen, I know that those of you that study prophecy and have studied end times, have studied Genesis and all, I know you're probably pulling your hair out and your eye, eyebrows out going, yeah, but you missed this and you missed this. and what? Yeah, I know. I only had like an hour, right? And this could be like a several week, maybe couple of month breakdown. But I want to I wanna show you and I, I want to just share with you my passion for finding these threads that run through Scripture and what the biblical story is about. I believe John in Revelation He's totally, totally vibing on Genesis and the garden and Eden. He's totally bringing back that imagery and, and saying that this, this restoration that's going to happen, this new creation that's going to happen when Hashem dwells on the earth is going to be the garden. My, my friend Mike Clayton, who's a wonderful teacher, asks people, where's the beginning of Scripture? And they say, Genesis. And he says, no, Revelation 22. <laughs> Revelation 21 and 22 is the beginning. This is a big cycle. And so this river, this water, when we, when we study Sukkot and when we celebrate and when we study about the water libation, again, it started out as agricultural, but you see how the prophets and the gospel writers and, and eventually John in Revelation develops this idea. It's, it's not just about crops. Crop, water brings life to crops, but ultimately water brings life to us. It comes from Jerusalem. It comes from the throne of God. It comes from, I'll even say it, the Jewish people his people, and it flows to the nations. The nations repent and turn back in allegiance to God. That is restoration. Shalom, shalom. Have a great rest of the week. Talk to you soon. 